Welcome to episode 10 of Matthew Linity, Critical Study of Matthew and Masculinity. In this series, I'll be navigating the world of Matthewan research, identifying assumptions, connecting old and new interpretations, including questions and perspectives previously overlooked or undervalued. There's a whole world of research that awaits. Are you ready? Finally, in this episode, I get to answer the question, why does the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 refer to five stories of how particular heirs were produced in a particular way by particular patriarchs from particular mothers? So why five? Why five stories? Is there some pattern? Last time in episode 9, I compared the first story with the final, the fifth story. So this time in episode 10... I'm concentrating on the middle three stories and how do they fit the overall pattern. Specifically, the middle of the middle story, the story of how Boaz produced Obed from Ruth. I'll begin by reading aloud the portion of text, in this case the entire chapter of Matthew chapter 1. Book of the Progeneration of Jesus Messiah, heir of David, heir of Abraham. Abraham produced Isaac. Isaac produced Jacob. Jacob produced Judah and his brothers. Judah produced Perez and Zerah from Tamar. Perez produced Ezrom. Ezrom produced Aram. Aram produced Aminadab. Aminadab produced Nason. Nason produced Salmon. Salmon produced Boaz from Rahab. Boaz produced Obed from Ruth. Obed produced Jesse. Jesse produced David the king. David produced Solomon from Hur of Uriah. Solomon produced Reboam. Reboam produced Abiah. Abiah produced Asaph. Asaph produced Josephat. Josephat produced Joram. Joram produced Uzziah. Uzziah produced Jotham. Jotham produced Ahaz. Ahaz produced Hezekiah. Hezekiah produced Manasseh. Manasseh produced Amos. Amos produced Josiah. Josiah produced Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah produced Silithiel. Silithiel produced Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel produced Abiud. Abiod produced Eliakim. Eliakim produced Azor. Azor produced Zadok. Zadok produced Akim. Akim produced Eliud. Eliud produced Eleazar. Eleazar produced Mathen. Mathen produced Jacob. Jacob produced Joseph, the husband of Mary. From her was produced Jesus, the one called Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham until David are 14 generations. And from David until the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. The progeneration of the Jesus Messiah was this way. His mother Mary, being betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, Her having a pregnant belly from the Holy Spirit became noticeable. Joseph, her husband, 
being a righteous man and not wanting to shame her, decided he would divorce her quietly. These things having resolved to do, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for the child in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This whole thing happened so that it would be a fulfillment of what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will have a pregnant belly, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Rising from sleep, Joseph did as he was commanded to do by the angel of the Lord. He took his wife. He was not knowing her up till the time she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What are we going to do about the patriarchal nature of Matthew chapter 1? It begins with a patrilineal genealogy. It's a very patriarchal idea, assuming that descent can be traced from father to son. The bequesting or the bequeathing of inheritance or the primogeniture is a very patriarchal idea, that the lineage can be traced from father to son. Now we might contrast this with later Judaism in the third century where the matrilineal principle developed, where lineage could be traced through the mothers rather than through the fathers. And we might think today, well, surely it's both, isn't it? It's, it's good to trace a lineage through the fathers and the mothers. Uh, but if we're looking at Matthew chapter 1, it's, it's a book that's written prior to the second century, and so it seems like it's uh, assumed that lineage can be traced father to son. And then the very next story, it's about Joseph as a patriarchal figure who is about to make a decision. Will he decide to accept this woman, Mary, into his household? and to accept this woman's child into his household and to raise this child as his own child, it's a very patriarchal dilemma. So what are we going to do about the patriarchal nature of Matthew chapter 1? Uh, are we going to be ashamed of the text and try not to think about it, try not to talk about it? Well, it turns out that the text itself provides a solution. The first thing to notice is the tension that is in the text itself. There's something in the text that is in conflict with or in tension with something else in the text. And the second thing to notice is the kind of target audience for the text. Who, who is the primary audience, the intended audience that the writer has in mind? Both of these things will help us to understand what's going on with the patriarchal nature of Matthew chapter 1. Okay, so looking at the tension that we find 
in Matthew chapter 1, there's a pretty wide consensus that there is some kind of tension here. Uh, whether people think that it's uh, biological tension, where Jesus is not Joseph's biological child. So the tension is between the kind of ancestry that's, that is biological, if we're reading biologically. Uh, other people think the tension might be between the genders, between the men and the women mentioned in the, in the genealogy. Other people think that the, the tension might be between Jew and Gentile. Okay, so even though there's not a wide consensus about what the tension is that we're experiencing in Matthew chapter 1, there is a consensus that there is some kind of tension. And what I'd like to demonstrate is that it is no accident that the text sounds so patriarchal. What we're noticing is intentional. There's something about the patriarchal nature of the text which is in conflict with itself. And that's the tension that we're supposed to be noticing. So if we're feeling, oh, the text sounds very patriarchal, then yes, that is what we're supposed to be noticing. What about the book's intended audience? How does, how does that help us? And how do we find out what, what the book's intended audience is? Well, the book never tells us. We can perhaps find a correlation between the kind of audience that we find in the book uh, with the kind of audience that we that we might expect to be finding outside the book, reading the book. So I'd like to look at Jesus's immediate audience in Matthew chapter five, and when I'm talking about the, the immediate audience of Jesus, I'm, I'm not talking about getting back to an actual reconstructed audience of Jesus from the first century. I'm talking about the, the kind of audience that we find within the story as it's presented in Matthew chapter 5. Now, it's not until chapter 5 that we find some specific examples of what exactly it is that Jesus is teaching. And it's interesting to notice who is Jesus' immediate audience in Matthew chapter 5. So it, uh, it says that Jesus sees the crowds and he goes up a mountain and his disciples follow him up the mountain, and he teaches them. And this seems to be referring to the men that Jesus has so far chosen to to be his students. So, so far, we've got quite a narrow audience in mind uh, at the beginning of chapter 5. By the end of the sermon, we see a wider audience has developed. So, larger crowds have appeared by the end of chapter 7, at the end of the sermon, So we can see that somewhere along the line, the audience has grown. So crowds have followed up the mountains at some stage. So at the beginning, we can see that the audience is narrow, that Jesus is teaching the first century men that he has chosen. And by the end of the sermon, we can see uh, an extended audience uh, as well. Now, we might see here a correlation with the book's audience. 
So if we're thinking about someone who is trying to write a book, they'll usually have a very narrow audience in mind when they're writing the material. In order to help frame the material for a for a particular target audience, a particular demographic, or even just one person that, that the writer has in mind uh, as they as they're working, just one person in mind that, that the writer thinks would most benefit or most appreciate, uh, or the message would would get across to this this person, and, and having a narrow audience in mind helps the writer to focus the material. And then, obviously, there's a wider audience that can grow. Uh, most writers are happy to grow their audience. It's quite a logical thing that we can see, and we can see it in Matthew chapter 5. It begins narrow, with a narrow audience, and then by the end of the sermon, we can see the wider audience that has grown. A wider audience is also appreciative of what Jesus is, is teaching. And perhaps we could see a correlation here with the book's audience. It could be the same kind of principle where the book's intended audience might similarly be the narrow audience and then the writer might be happy to grow that audience. But let's pay attention to the narrow audience that we, we see that the book might be, just as we see Matthew chapter 5, targeting first century men. Now, if we look at the first two examples that Jesus is teaching his narrow audience, he begins by beginning with some blessings and introducing what it is that he's doing and what he's not doing. And then he gives some specific ethical teachings. And he begins with what people already know uh, from the books of Moses. So he begins teaching on murder and adultery and other things. But if we just look at the first two things, murder and adultery, and we just notice how patriarchal these topics are as they are framed in Matthew chapter 5. So Jesus has chosen particular men to be teaching them about murder and adultery. And he's teaching them other things as well. But if we just look at the first two things. So Jesus says, well, you know the teaching on murder? Do not murder. And, well, I'm telling you, don't even get angry with your brother. Don't let it get to the murder stage by dealing with it at the anger stage. It's just as important to work on the anger issue before it gets to the stage of murder. And this is something that in Judaism is called building a fence around the teaching or building a fence around the Torah. So Moses' instructions are... being extended, made made stricter by extending a, a fence around the particular teaching, and extending it to moving it moving it uh, to, towards the the person, so that they they never get to breaking that commandment because they're dealing with uh, with already a more stricter commandment. And we can see the same thing on adultery. 
Jesus says, well, you know the teaching on adultery? It's do not commit adultery. And Jesus says, well, do not even look lustfully at a woman that's not your woman. And we can see here that both of these topics, murder and adultery, are being addressed to the first century men that Jesus has chosen to teach in his narrow audience. Uh, Naturally, the wider audience can also benefit as well. If there's less murder and adultery in society, then society is benefiting. Society is better off. Uh, But it pays to notice what's going on with the primary audience, the immediate, the, the narrow audience. It's a it's a very patriarchal topic. And even though we could find something universal about these teachings, it, it pays to notice the intended narrow audience. It's targeting first century men. And these are free men, men who are potentially heads of households. Uh, so um, now if this is the case with the immediate audience that we find within the story, within the book, perhaps it's also the case with the book's narrow audience. Perhaps the book's narrow audience is likewise intended to get a message across to particular first century men who are heads of households or potentially are set to become heads of households. There's another reason why I bring up Matthew chapter 5, and it's not just to bring up how patriarchal it sounds Jesus is is creating an even stricter teaching to help his disciples learn a particular message that that sounds very patriarchal. There's another reason that I bring up Matthew chapter 5, and that is to ask the question, where have we previously heard these two ethical topics, murder and adultery, before, previously in Matthew? These two topics have come up previously in the book of Matthew. Where previously, where is the first time that we hear of these two topics or we hear the hint of these two topics? Well, it's back in Matthew chapter 1. So we already have these two topics, murder and adultery, hinted in Matthew chapter 1. Now, you might think, oh, is it when Joseph was thinking about what to do, and he was assuming that Mary had committed adultery and he was going to unjustly hand her over to be killed because he was assuming the wrong thing. No, no, neither of these things are in the text. Neither of those things are in the text. Uh, So I encourage listeners to go back to episode six to look at what Joseph was thinking, uh, what's in the text and what's not in the text. But it's earlier than this. It's back in verse six uh, in the genealogy when it indicates how David produced Solomon. It could have just said, David produced Solomon, Solomon produced Rehoboam. It could have just gone on to the next regeneration, except it uses this as one of the highlighted examples, one of the stories that are being highlighted here about how particular heirs were produced. So how did David produce Solomon? Well, it was from her of Uriah. In other words, from another man's wife. It's from a, an adulterous union. So it's pointing out the adultery. 
And if we remember the story from Samuel, then the adultery is the first step. And then the next step was David tries to cover up the adultery by having Uriah killed. So then David has committed murder as well as adultery. So why is it highlighting David's flaws? It could have just skipped over it and just said David produced Solomon, Solomon produced Reboam. Instead, it seems to be highlighting David's sins of murder and adultery. Surely, other scholars have seen that the pattern has got to do with the men. It's about how particular men produced particular heirs. And the text is asking us to notice a pattern with the men. Uh, Well, there are scholars who have noticed this. Uh, Richard Borkham, for example, has suggested that, oh, perhaps the pattern might be something to do with the men but he hasn't followed it up as as far as I know. Amy Jill Levine is one scholar who has been suggesting this for a while, that there is a pattern with the men, although I don't know that she uses the word pattern, but she says that the text seems to be pointing out something about the men. In fact, it seems to be pointing out the flaws with the men. But she doesn't seem to be explaining further about, well, how does this pattern work. So what what kind of flaws is it ex, ex, exposing? How, how do all the different stories fit together? As far as I know, she has not yet developed this theory of, well, it's, it's talking about the men and it's talking about the flaws in the men. Now, there is one scholar who has followed up this suggestion, and it's not it's not based on Amy Jill Levine's suggestion, as far as I know. It's an independent study. And that is the scholar Sebastian Doan. And he's written an article on the masculinity of the husbands identified in Matthew chapter 1, looking at the five stories of Judah, Salmon, Boaz, David, and how that compares with the masculinities of Joseph and Jesus. Now, I'd like to point out why scholars have not yet gotten very far with this theory. Now, the conclusion that Sebastian Doan comes up with is very similar to Amy Jill Levine's conclusion, that it's pointing out flaws with these particular men in the cases of the four progenitors. And we can see this quite easily in the fourth story. In the fourth story, where David produced Solomon from another man's wife, uh, so we can see that it's pointing out David's flaws in in, in that case. Uh, But what about with Boaz? It's a little bit more difficult to see that. So Sebastian Doan suggests that perhaps Boaz was too generous. Maybe Boaz is just too generous. Um, okay. What about Selmon? Well, uh, Sebastian Doan admits, along with other scholars, that we, we don't really know what to do with Salmon because we can't find his story in the scriptures as it relates to Rahab. So uh, anyway, uh, Rahab's story clearly overshadows Salmon. 
And so Sebastian Don says that Rahab uh, overshadows Salmon's masculinity. And what about the first case, Judah? Well, it's easy to spot Judah's flaws. Uh, I talked about that last time in episode 9. Except they also indicated that it wasn't just talking about Judah's flaws. It wasn't just exposing Judah's flaws. It was picking up the story at the moment where Judah realizes that he needs to change direction and that he was behaving wrongly towards Tamar and that Tamar had been behaving rightly. And so Judah has this repentant moment. And so it's not just pointing out Judah's flaws. So the theory that, okay, it's pointing out the flaws in the first four men, in in the first four stories that are being highlighted. It's highlighting the flaws of the men. It's a little bit correct, uh, but but the reason why it needs a bit more work, it's, it needs to be a bit more nuanced, is because the terminology isn't quite right. So I prefer to use the label fathers rather than men. Okay, so what difference does it make whether we say the men in the genealogy or the fathers in the genealogy. Does it does it make much difference? Well, actually, it makes quite a big difference because it helps us to narrow down the topic because it's not just referring to men when it's highlighting particular heirs that are progenerated. It's highlighting particular fathers, particular progenerations by particular patriarchal figures. And they're not just any patriarchal figures. They're patriarchal figures in a messianic lineage. So it's based on a royal lineage. So in terms of the prestige and the privilege of who these figures are, it's, it's, it's having a say about who they are as the progenitors, who they are in terms of how they became the fathers. How did these particular patriarchs, the ones that are being highlighted, how did they procure their heirs? How did they bequeath the inheritance to the next generation? Uh, what what was it that enabled that process to happen? Uh, that is some, there's something interesting about that process. It's not just masculinity in general, although that does seem to it does fit generally within the topic of masculinity. But it's narrowing down the topic to be that of a certain kind of fatherhood that's that's being looked at in terms of the father, in terms of the paternity. Uh, just like we saw last time in episode 9, that it was focusing on issues of paternity. Okay, so what I think it's time for me to do is just to come out and say what the overall pattern is. Uh, Well, actually, I've already revealed what the overall pattern is last time in episode 9. But I didn't really say what it was. Uh, But it's a symmetrical pattern. It's a chiastic structure where the first story that's highlighted has all these inverted parallels with the final story. And the second story has some kind of correspondences with the fourth story. And they're either side of the center point. The story in the middle is the center story. 
So story number three is not just structurally central, but it is telling us the whole point of this overall pattern. And for the rest of this episode, I'll be looking at how does it work? Is it really a symmetry? What what does it look like? And then how does it work in terms of how does it function? What's the meaning of it? It's not just there for looks, but it it has a a significance. And then ultimately, what is it telling us that, that we can take away with us? I mean, otherwise, it's like, what's what's the point? Why go to all this effort to put a, a pattern in the text without us actually being able to benefit from knowing what, what, what are we supposed to do with it? Okay, so we've got this symmetrical pattern. Well, allegedly, it's a symmetrical pattern. I haven't yet demonstrated that it really is a symmetrical pattern. But if it, if it is a symmetrical pattern... Uh, we've got all these inverted parallels between the first and the fifth, and perhaps the second and the fourth, and the middle story is really central, then we probably also need to ask, what is so important about having this pattern? I mean, like it seems like a lot of work to go to. I mean, if it is true that this is a symmetrical pattern, this is a lot of work to go to to put a pattern in the genealogy, like another pattern in the genealogy. So if we think about, this is not the only pattern that's being put in the genealogy. In fact, we've got another big pattern in Matthew chapter 1, and that is what verse 17 is is pointing out, that there already is a pattern of three groups of 14 progenerations. It's, it's quite a big pattern. I mean, even if verse 17 didn't point it out, we'd probably still notice it. But verse 17 was pointing out a big structural pattern in the genealogy. So now it seems like we have two patterns uh, that have some kind of structure, has some sort of some sort of significance. And how do these two big patterns fit with each other as well as with the entire chapter? So if someone were to ask me, well, okay, just tell me the two biggest patterns in Matthew chapter one. Well, these are the two big patterns: the structural patterning of three groups of 14 progenerations where it leads from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to the arrival of the one called the Messiah. That's a very important pattern. And the other very important pattern is the pattern of the five references to mothers of how particular progenitors produce particular heirs in a particular way from particular mothers. This is the second biggest pattern. And so what we'd like to know is, how do these two patterns fit together? Uh, It's not like one of them is there on purpose and the other one's just there accidentally. So (laughs) we'd like to know, how do these patterns fit together? And how do they help us to understand the entire chapter of Matthew chapter 1? Okay, here we go. The symmetry. Well, I've already started to explain the symmetrical pattern last time in episode 9, where I was talking about the first highlighted story about how Judah produced Perez and Zerah from Tamar, and how there's all these inverted parallels with how Joseph's heir, Jesus, was produced from Mary. So what what we're left with doing now is to look at the three stories in the middle, Stories 2, 3, and 4. So is it really the case that 
these stories fit this symmetrical pattern. I'd like to begin with story number four, which is how David produced Solomon from her of Uriah, from Uriah's wife Bathsheba. Now, this is quite a complex story as it's presented in Matthew chapter 1 compared to the other air productions. And what I mean by that is that it doesn't match perfectly with the version that we have in the book of Samuel. In fact, the ending of of the story isn't even found in the the book of Samuel. That's found in the book of Kings. And so Matthew chapter 1 is actually collapsing several stories together to say that David produced Solomon as his heir. I mean, well, the ending of the story is in the book of Kings, where it didn't look like David was going to choose Solomon to be his heir. Uh, He doesn't seem to be particularly interested in and getting Solomon on the throne, and it was because of Bathsheba and Nathan conspiring together to to go to the elderly David, whose whose mind is a bit feeble at this stage, and to convince him that he really does want Solomon on the throne. And so David's like, "Oh yes, yeah, okay, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah." And so it didn't seem like it was going to be Solomon as the heir, if not for. Bathsheba and Nathan. Um, and so that's the final part of the story. And whereas Matthew chapter 1 makes it look like, well, that's that's just the, the air, as if, <laughs> as if there's no other competition. Um, that's that's sort of what, what, what happened. David produced Solomon. And now there's another two parts of the story which are being collapsed together as well. Because if we go back to the original story in Samuel, then, well, by the time that Solomon is born then Bathsheba is already David's wife. In fact, Bathsheba conceived Solomon as David's legitimate wife. Uh, so that, that's a separate account as to when the, the murder and adultery happened, when Bathsheba was not David's wife. So that, that first child died. And then David ended up marrying Bathsheba taking her as one of his legitimate wives. So what we've got in Matthew chapter 1 has collapsed three parts of the story to make it sound like it's just one story. And we can understand that from a genealogical perspective, it makes sense to collapse several parts of the story together like like this. And this but there seems to be a purpose as well to to pointing out the flaws in in the production, but it makes it sound like that David produced Solomon from another man's wife, even though that doesn't match completely the original version of the story. So if we're following the version of the story in Matthew chapter 1, then we're finding out that, well, a collapsed version of the story uh, doesn't match perfectly the, the original version in Samuel. It doesn't map on perfectly, but we can see that well, it's it's understandable that the writer would want to be highlighting something here. This, we can understand that the, the, the collapsing them together is is in order to make a point. Uh, what what is that point exactly? That's that's a, uh, another question. But we can understand that it makes sense to be wanting to make a point out of these three parts of the story, and to make them sound like well, you know, that that can be summarized as a single story. 
Another reason that I say the story is complex, story number four is is complex, it's not just because it, it doesn't map perfectly onto a single story, but because the mother is not named. I mean, we can figure out that it means Bathsheba, uh, but this is something that seems to be a little bit mysterious. It's, it's, it seems a bit baffling. Why not just say Bathsheba's name? The writer knows, presumably, the name of the mother is Bathsheba, so why not say Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah? So what's going on? It seems seems like there might be a point, it might be deliberate, but, but what what's what's going on? Now at this point I'd like to talk about story number two. Uh, let's 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 go to story number two of how Salmon produced Boaz from Rahab. Okay, so let's go to that story in the scripture well, hang on, what? We don't it looks like we don't have that story. Oh okay. Um so we could try and guess that maybe it's just a extra tradition, an extra apocryphal story that Salmon got together with Rahab and produced Boaz. What what's going on here? How do we take the story that's presented in Matthew chapter one that Salmon produced Boaz from Rahab and map that on to Rahab's story? Because we've got Rahab's story in the book of Joshua. Okay, so well let's let's just look at Rahab's story. Hang on, maybe we do have Salmon's story. Because Matthew chapter one seems to be presenting it as if we do have Salmon there in Rahab's story. What if Salmon was actually in Rahab's story? Because Rahab's story is a story of Rahab and two unnamed men. So there are two men who stay the night at Rahab's house. Uh, What if one of them is to be considered to be Salmon? What? And there are a variety of ways to calculate, okay, well, when did Salmon live? Uh, there's a variety of chronologies that we could work out. And some of the chronologies actually do work. It actually does seem like you could read it as if, well, Salmon is in that era. Salmon could have been one of the high-ranking military spies that Joshua sent and stayed the night at Rahab's house. So perhaps, according to Matthew chapter 1, we do have Salmon's story. He is there in the story. Okay, well, what about, how does this correlate to story number 4? Because if it's part of a symmetry, stories 2 and 4 are either side of the middle story that they need to have some kind of correlation. Well, this is interesting because Rahab's story is, well, it's a story of Rahab and two unnamed men that the story doesn't name. And in the fourth highlighted progeneration of how David produced Solomon, in Matthew chapter 1, the writer doesn't name the woman, he names the two men. So we have two named men and an unnamed woman. And this, is, this is interesting because the writer of Matthew chapter 1 expects us to be able to name Bathsheba as the unnamed mother. So perhaps also the writer of Matthew chapter 1 
can name the unnamed father in the story of Rahab. So perhaps we can be expected to name the unnamed man in Rahab's story because of we can be expected to name the unnamed woman in the story of David David and Uriah. So it does seem to be counterbalancing each other, these two stories, stories two and four. Story number two is originally a story of a named woman and two unnamed men, while story number four, in as it's presented in Matthew, is a story of two named men and an unnamed woman. Now, there are more correlations as well, because if we had to think of any stories in all the scriptures of uh, stories about a woman and a roof, uh, well, what two stories would come to mind? It would be these two stories. So Rahab uh, hides the men on her roof. So she's on the roof talking to the men while she's, she's hiding them. And story number four, well, that begins with David on his roof when he sees Bathsheba. Another correlation is that there is a moment in each story where the woman or the mother outwits the king in the story by convincing the king to believe something different. So this is interesting. So there are a few correlations that are going on between stories two and and stories four, even though we wouldn't have expected to find correlations between these two stories if we did not have them connected together in Matthew chapter 1. Now, it's one thing to say, okay, look, stories two and four, there's some counterbalancing going on there. There's, there's some Correlations in the way that it's presented to us. Uh, but but what about, do they actually fit the overall pattern? I mean, otherwise, just leave them out. Just just have the first story highlighting how Judah produced Perez and Zerah from Tamar. And the final story highlighting how Joseph's heir was produced from Mary. And the middle story, uh, which I'm claiming to be very uh, significant as the middle story, we could have just left out stories two and four, but if they are there, they're probably there because they also fit the overall pattern. Otherwise, it seems like a lot of effort to go to to put stories two and four there to, to try to correspond to each other in some way. If it's, It just seems like a lot of effort if they do not also fit the overall pattern. So let's look at the overall pattern. So I'd like to show you how stories two and four do fit the overall pattern. Now, I've already begun to talk about what the overall pattern is last time in episode 9 by showing that the first and last stories highlighted are about surprise paternity. So how Judah became the father of Perez and Zerah uh, from Tamar, uh, there's there's an element of surprise to that story which corresponds to the element of surprise for Joseph becoming the father of Jesus. And so how fathers gained their fatherhood in stories two and four, there should, in theory, be some kind of surprise paternity. Okay, well, how did Salmon 
become the father of Boaz? Um, well, that is a surprise to us. We didn't know until reading Matthew chapter 1 that that was going to be revealed to us. So, surprise, Salmon's the father of Boaz. So, okay, so we are surprised that Salmon was in Rahab's story, but perhaps it might have also been a surprise to Salmon to be in Rahab's story. Maybe he didn't know that he was in the story. Uh, but if we were going to, to go back to the young Salmon and to interview the young teenage Salmon, uh, long before he's ready to actually be married, and if we were to ask the young Salmon, well, who are you planning on marrying? Well, his answer is not likely to be, oh, I think I'll marry a Canaanite sex worker. I mean, that's not going to impress his parents. It's probably not what he's planning on doing. So if someone were to suggest to the young Salmon, oh, are you planning on marrying a Canaanite sex worker? That would that would not have been, it would not have been on his mind, probably. It's probably not what he's planning to do anyway. So the suggestion that he would be raising children with a sex worker from Jericho, it's, it's probably just not on the radar. It's just not the plans that he's, that he's planning on doing. And if we consider all of the potential fathers that could be the father of Rahab's child, uh, there were many candidates, many potential fathers, because of Rahab's line of work. How would anyone know for certain who the father of Rahab's child actually was? How would anyone know? Well, apparently, Matthew chapter 1 is revealing who the father of Rahab's child was. So whichever way we look at it, there does seem to be something surprising about Salmon's paternity, of Salmon becoming the father of Boaz from Rahab. We do seem to find surprise paternity seems to be quite applicable in the story, according to Matthew chapter 1. Anyway, if we're following Matthew chapter 1 and we're trying to match that up with Rahab's story. Okay, so I'll get back to story number three in a moment. Let's let's have a look at story number four. So the fatherhood of David to Solomon, how David became the father of Solomon. Is there some sort of surprise fatherhood there? Well, yes. Well, remember that Matthew chapter one has collapsed the three stories together. And so this actually helps to create more, or it actually helps to highlight the surprise element. Uh, because in the original story, David doesn't take Bathsheba in order to raise uh, the next king from, from Bathsheba. He doesn't, he doesn't plan to be producing Solomon from Bathsheba. It, that's not what is on David's agenda. So David was never planning to to have Solomon be on the throne. According to the, the, the third part of the story, it's only because of Bathsheba and Nathan that, that it ends up happening. So if we're looking at the planning, it's definitely not being planned out by David to produce Solomon from another man's wife. To produce his heir, Solomon, it's not, it's just not what David is uh, planning. So when Bathsheba is pregnant 
and she sends a message which is basically, surprise, I'm pregnant, what are you going to do about it? Uh, and so then David sets in motion uh, trying to um, make it look like it was Uriah's child by calling Uriah back from the battle and try and get him to go home and sleep with his wife so that people would think that it was Uriah's child. And that that doesn't end up working. So then David uh, decides to to have Uriah uh, killed. And in Matthew chapter 1, remember, it looks like all three parts of the story are the one story where the child that is born is the child that ends up on the throne, and that is the child that David produced from another man's wife. So by compressing the three stories together and making them sound like one story, it's also highlighting the lack of David making that happening. That wasn't David that's that's planning it to be that way. I mean, it ends up happening. It ends up happening, coming out that way. But now we can see why in Matthew chapter 1 it was collapsing the story into one story to make a point about how it turned out despite David's lack of predetermined planning. It's pointing out how the outcome was not David's intention. Okay, so does the third story also fit this overall pattern of having some kind of surprise paternity? There's some sort of element of surprise in terms of the fatherhood. There's something unplanned about what ended up happening wasn't being planned by the patriarch. Now, at first we might think, well, that doesn't seem to apply in the case of Boaz, does it? Uh, you know, it's a love story. Boaz and Ruth end up together. They get married and have a child. It's it's Boaz's child. Uh, well, the problem is, it's not it's not what Boaz was planning. Uh, Boaz was not planning to raise the child as his own child, as part of his own lineage. In fact, that's that's. The, the, the opposite of the plan. The plan is to, to raise up a child on behalf of somebody else, on behalf of Ruth's first husband, her, her dead husband. It, Boaz is going to raise up a child on behalf of Mahlon. So when we find out that, in the end, that it is Boaz's child, hang on, it's not supposed to be Boaz's child. And that gets us into uh, a deeper discussion also about what's really going on in the book of Ruth. Why is it that Boaz is is uh, intending not to raise the child as his child? It's supposed to be raising it as somebody else's child. And then the genealogy at the end of the book uh, declares that it's Boaz's child and it goes into Boaz's lineage instead of Elimelech's lineage, so Naomi's lineage, Mahlon, the the first husband of Ruth, doesn't go into that lineage. Uh, But we'll get back to that in in a moment. Uh, So for the time being, I'd just like to point out that each of these five stories, all five stories, have an element of surprise paternity. None of the patriarchs were planning for it to turn out that way. So we have unplanned fatherhood for each of these five stories. Stories. That's quite that's quite an accomplishment to be 
highlighting such a, a clear pa- well it's, it hasn't been clear so far but uh, I can now say that well now that we know what it is it's quite easy to to spot many people have tried different theories but that, that just haven't been very convincing well here we go this is the one that fits all five stories Now, uh, before I get to unpacking the third story, uh, it's good to get back to uh, the question of why do we have this pattern at all? Like, um, this this pattern is an important pattern. If we think of the two important patterns that are being highlighted in Matthew chapter 1, then, well, what's the other pattern that's being highlighted? There is the, the structural pattern of, Three groups of fourteen progenerations, and so and then we've got this pattern of five stories of how particular heirs were produced in particular ways, uh, and and that's they're all got to something to do with an unplanned fatherhood. Uh, so what, how how do these two big patterns dovetail? How do they work together? So if we think of the entire chapter is teaching us about the arrival of the Messiah, uh, how the Messiah arrived is being highlighted in the pattern of the five stories. Um, and also how the Messiah arrived is also being highlighted in the other pattern of the three groups of 14. Uh, but, but if we notice the difference between these two patterns, what would we say uh is a difference between these two patterns. And by difference, I mean, they both seem to be telling us something about how the Messiah arrived. Why have two patterns indicating the same thing, indicating how the Messiah arrives? Well, if we're looking at, okay, well, verse 17 is pointing out the grand plan to bring the Messiah. So it's it's God's intention for, for, the, for the Messiah to arrive. That's always been the plan. That's always been the intention. The biblical genealogy, that's a certain shape in order to indicate that that did happen. It was determined to happen. This was the divine providential timing. It, it, it happened according to the divine plan. Now, if we think of uh, the other pattern, the other big pattern, the pattern of the five stories, five references to five mothers highlighting how particular heirs were produced, well, this is a pattern about what mothers and fathers are doing. What, what, what was it? What was going on in the human realm? So, if we compare these two big patterns, verse seventeen is highlighting the divine providential aspect. And the other big pattern, the pattern of five stories, that's highlighting the human role. Uh, what, 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 what did humans contribute to bringing about the Messiah? Okay, now I'd like to get back to the third story, which is the central story. Uh, it's got everything we need to know right in this central story. The story of how Boaz produced Obed as his heir from Ruth. Okay, so now that we can see that there is a consistency of the pattern, all five stories that are being highlighted are highlighting some kind of consistency 
where the unplanned fatherhood is being highlighted. Uh, and we can begin to see now that, okay, this is about the patriarchs who didn't plan to bring the heir about. I mean, it happened, but this this is interesting. So let's let's go and look a little bit more closely at the third story of how Boaz produced Obed from Ruth. Okay, so one reason why it pays so much to look at the center story is because it's quite a, a helpfully presented story. It's not just a little story that, that happens in the middle of another book. It is its own book. It's, it's, we've got an entire book that is entirely devoted to the story of Ruth and Boaz and how they got together and, and produced a child. This is really helpful for us because we can we can study the book of Ruth and really get into the story because the whole book is the story. Uh, well, the story of the book of Ruth, uh, this, this also connects back to other stories as well. So uh, it's no surprise that Tamar is mentioned in the book of Ruth. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised by now to find that our story number three is referring to our story number one um, in the genealogy. So the third highlighted story in our chapter, in Matthew chapter one, is already itself linking back to the story number one that we that we had highlighted in our uh, Matthew chapter one. Now we can also see why the book of Ruth is named after the character Ruth rather than the character Boaz, uh, because well we meet Ruth. Before we meet Boaz, we find out quite a lot about Ruth's character before we find out about Boaz. Uh, and there's one way that we could study the book of Ruth is to look at it from the perspective of what's going on with Ruth. Uh, but Matthew chapter 1 is asking us to notice what's going on with Boaz. Now, another interesting thing about the book of Ruth is that the genealogy that we find at the, at the end of the book of Ruth uses the same uh, kind of phrasing to, to phrase the, the genealogy as what we find in Matthew chapter 1. Or we should probably say it the other way around, that Matthew chapter 1 seems to prefer the kind of phrasing for how to relate the, the progenerations uh, as what we find in the genealogy from the book of Ruth. There is another linkage with the book of Ruth that, that other people don't seem to be talking about, which seems to be really important. And that is that we've got a story in the book of Ruth that's supposed to be about raising a child that's not going to be counted as Boaz's child. And it's not supposed to be known as Bo- Boaz's child, but we get to the genealogy at the end of the book and it's known as Boaz's child. Uh what what's going on? Why is it that the genealogy is saying that it is Boaz's child and it's counting it within Boaz's lineage? That that's not what's supposed to be happening according to the story that led up to the genealogy. So where have we heard this problem before? <laughs> I mean, for those of us who've been studying Matthew chapter one, then we will recognise hey, this sounds a little bit similar 
this sounds very similar to the problem that scholars have been working on in Matthew chapter 1, where they've been worried about how does the genealogy lead up to the, the story of Joseph? How, how does the story of Joseph's heir becoming Joseph's heir connect with Joseph's genealogy? You know, isn't the genealogy giving us a false lead? And then Joseph doesn't want to claim paternity rights because it's not his child. And then Joseph does end up becoming known as the father. In both cases, in the case of Joseph and in the case of Boaz, there's something similar going on. With the, the both have a bit of a conflict with the plan to not raise the child as their child. So the difference is that Boaz doesn't know that it's going to be claimed as Boaz's child, whereas Joseph is told, actually, go ahead, it is going to be you claiming the child. But it's very interesting that we've got very similar issues going on between what's going on in the book of Ruth with the genealogy and in the story of Mary and Joseph and the genealogy that leads up to the story. So it's interesting to look at what does the book of Ruth do do with the issue or how, how do the readers in the time of Matthew deal with this issue of, of having a, a genealogy which seems to be saying something different than the story? How, how does that work? In the first century, in the time of Matthew, people are not reading the book of Ruth and thinking, oh, well, the, the genealogy obviously doesn't belong. It's obviously been added at a later stage. It's just a separate thing that just, just doesn't, it doesn't fit. It's just not compatible. Well, no, that they make it work. They make it fit. They treat it as part of the book. And so this helps us to understand also what's going on in Matthew chapter 1. And vice versa. Matthew chapter 1 helps us to understand the issue in the book of Ruth. Okay, so Boaz is not supposed to be known as the father, but according to the genealogy, he ends up being known as the father. Well, okay, in the, in the case of Joseph, well, that's because of divine providence. He's, he's not trying to make the child his. But because of the divine factors, Joseph ends up being known as the father. Now, this is the same kind of pattern that we can see in the book of Ruth. What the genealogy in the book of Ruth is doing is saying it's because Boaz wasn't trying to make the child his own. He's not trying to raise the child as his own uh, to, to, you know, for his own lineage. Uh, it's, that's precisely why the genealogy says, well, he should be known as the father. It's the same principle that we've got in the case of Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. So it's, it's really quite incredible the number of parallels between what's going on with Boaz and what's going on with Joseph. And so uh, I've already pointed out a lot of parallels between Joseph and Judah. So Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and Judah in Genesis 38. Uh, so we might think, oh, look, we've run out of options to find parallels. Judah and Joseph has exhausted all the parallels. But no, here we go. We've got a whole bunch of parallels to be thinking of, which really aren't really new because it fits the overall pattern. The difference is that in the case of Joseph, Joseph can probably guess that He's being asked to be the father, and it's going to be—it's going to be known as his child. Uh, whereas in the case of Boaz, it's after the story finishes that that Boaz uh, still doesn't probably know that it's going to be counted as his child. So when we meet Boaz, Boaz is just busy doing good things, um, you know, being a nice guy, 
Um, he isn't pursuing Ruth. So it's Ruth that pursues him uh, with Naomi's encouragement. Uh, but that's, whose idea was it to propose marriage? Well, that's not Boaz's idea. Ruth proposes marriage to Boaz. So Boaz is being portrayed as not following his own interests. He's not trying to just do whatever is good for himself. Um, uh, he's not trying to feather his own nest. Uh, he's, he's actually going along with Ruth. He's, he's, he's the supporting role. He's the supporting role for Ruth. He's saying, well, Ruth, that's a really good idea. Uh, he is constantly impressed by Ruth. Now, if we think of the setting for the book of Ruth, it's set back in the time of the judges. And if we think of the refrain from the book of Judges, of what was it like in the, book of the, uh, in the days of the judges when the judges judged? Well, it, the refrain that keeps coming up in the book of Judges is that, well, each man just did whatever was good in his own eyes for himself. Each man just looked after his own interests, every man for himself. They didn't have the, the interests that could extend beyond themselves, whereas Boaz does. This is the book of Ruth that's set in the time of the judges, where Boaz does have the ability to look beyond himself. And he sees what Ruth is doing, and he's super impressed with Ruth. So where is Boaz's inspiration from? It's from Ruth. He's very inspired when he sees the kind of person that Ruth is and what she's doing for her mother-in-law. So Ruth is the one who has decided to stick with Naomi. Uh, you know, she's not going to, she's not going to abandon Naomi, even though Naomi's saying, look, there's nothing, there's no, no reason for you to be following me and to be returning to my own people. You return to your own people. And Ruth says, no, I'm never going to abandon you. Uh, she's, she wants to think beyond her own needs and to support Naomi. And so Boaz is so impressed by this. And so Boaz is exemplary because of what he's willing to do in a supporting role. And so because of what Boaz is not doing, he's not pursuing you know, whatever seems good in his own eyes, he's not just pursuing his own interests, he's able to support the, the good interests that he sees in Ruth, supporting Naomi, so we can see that the more that we study Boaz, the more that we can see what kind of man Joseph was in Matthew chapter 1. And notice how the parallels between Boaz and Joseph in terms of not shaming the woman. So just as it says that Joseph didn't want to shame Mary, didn't want to say or do anything to bring shame to Mary, uh, well, we find a couple of places in the book of Ruth where it says similar things about Boaz. Uh, well, I should say it the other way around. It's similar things are being said about Joseph as what was said about Boaz. Uh, so uh, there's a time where it shows that Boaz was protecting Ruth from the harvesters. So the the other male harvesters uh, might be uh, might have harassed Ruth, and 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 Boaz is is trying to make sure that that doesn't happen. And then when Ruth stays over at the at the threshing floor overnight uh he's concerned for sending her back at a moment preventing ruth from being known as someone who pursues unsanctioned sexual relationships 
she didn't, he didn't want her to be shamed. So we find that um, a couple of points in the book of Ruth that is pointing out how Boaz is wanting to protect Ruth from being shamed. Now, why is it that we that we are having these five stories? That we this the central story is the story of what Boaz did for Ruth. Well, remember that the whole point of having a genealogy and having two patterns, having this double pattern in the, in the genealogy, one that's that's pointing out the, the structural pattern of three groups of fourteen, uh, leading to the arrival of the Messiah, and the other pattern pointing out particular heirs and how they were produced. Uh, so we've got this double pattern. The whole point of all of this is to talk about how did the Messiah arrive? What was it that led to the Messiah? How did it happen? Uh, looking at the, the double nature in terms of the divine role and the human role. And so we've got the divine plan to bring the Messiah. And then we've got what humans are doing. What, what, is, what are the humans doing to bring the Messiah? Now, if we think of the case of Boaz in terms of someone who is willing to raise a child that's, that's not even going to be counted as his own child, his own heir. Who else in the scriptures is presented as as being willing to do this? I mean, there may there may be historical cases outside the scriptures, but where where else in the scriptures does it actually give us an example of someone who is willing to do what Boaz is willing to do? So I don't know any other examples. I mean, in the story of Judah and Tamar, Judah's second son was not willing to do it. He wasn't, he wasn't interested. I mean, and it's, it's understandable that it seems like a big thing to ask. Uh, it's a difficult thing for an ancient man in, in ancient times to do, or a free man to do, because it means putting his own legacy on hold. It means furthering someone else's name rather than taking advantage of the opportunity to further his own name. But Boaz is the only example that we've been given uh, until Joseph. Joseph is the second example of somebody who is is willing to do it. And this is why the story is saying that well, he is credited with the title of becoming the father because he was willing not to assert those rights that he could have asserted. Yeah, so basically, Boaz is not there to be pursuing his own interests, uh, whatever it seems good to benefit himself. And that's that's so in contrast with the, ver- the very first sentence in the book, which says, back when the judges judged. Uh, so this is back when... It was the refrain for the book of Judges, remember, is each man for himself. Every man just pursued his own interests. And so this is the contrast that we're seeing in the book of Ruth. Uh, It's basically uh, showing the transition of how did the people get out of that vicious cycle? They couldn't really think of getting beyond a period of the Judges they couldn't how did they get out of that period and so the book of ruth tells a story of how did the 
the messianic lineage emerge from Boaz. There are many different ways that people can analyze the book of Ruth. and um, But I think that if we're thinking of it from the perspective of Matthew chapter 1, what is the writer of Matthew chapter 1 expecting us to notice? How is the writer of Matthew reading the book of Ruth? I'd like to go back to the question that I started with in episode six about Joseph. What's going on with Joseph and why is Joseph so initially unwilling to make Mary his wife and to make Mary's child his child? And this is difficult for us to understand without first understanding that we are being shown an ancestral pattern here. And Joseph is the fifth highlighted case in a pattern. Uh, If we were not aware of the pattern of the five highlighted stories concerning the Messiah's parentage and the pattern of how the patriarchal prerogative to produce an heir is absent in five cases, then we would have trouble understanding Joseph's reticence to claim Mary and her child as his wife and his child. What's going on with Boaz helps to inform what's going on with Joseph. Uh, Perhaps the best example that that helps to tie all of this together is to see that Boaz is in a position where he could easily take advantage of his position to pursue Ruth and to make Ruth his wife. And this happens actually on on more than one occasion. So when he meets Ruth, he does not try to pursue Ruth for himself. He's allowing Ruth to pursue whoever she wants to pursue. And so when Naomi realizes that Boaz is not pursuing Ruth, she tells Ruth to pursue Boaz one night at the threshing floor. Basically, she's saying to seduce him. Uh, If she seduces him, she can make him her husband. Because once they've slept together, then Boaz will have to admit that they are now man and woman, basically husband and wife. Uh, Well, what ends up happening in, in the story is that sometime in the night, Boaz wakes up and realizes that there is a woman lying next to him, and he says, what? Uh, Who are you? And Ruth explains who she is and basically proposes marriage. So notice again, it's up to Boaz to make a decision about what will he do. Boaz finds himself again in a situation that it's a tempting situation. He could take advantage of the situation for his own benefit. But notice what his initial response is. He is immediately impressed that Ruth is not just thinking of, you know, what's best for her own benefit. And then Boaz, likewise, is thinking of other people involved. He realizes that there's another closer relative. So if they're going to do this properly, then, you know, they need to think of who else is involved here. Uh, So he's got to first deal with this closer relative Boaz doesn't say, oh, hey, look, okay, let's just sleep together tonight and then tell everyone in the morning that we're now a couple. He's thinking long term and he's thinking of who else is affected, who else is involved in, in what they're planning on, on doing. In other words, he's not just taking advantage of the situation for benefiting himself, even when Ruth is just there lying with him under the covers. So notice how all of this relates to the case of Joseph. Joseph is in a position 
where he could easily just claim Mary and her child for himself. That's the position that he finds himself in. So what we've got presented to us, ultimately this is a reversal of the pattern that Tim Mackey from The Bible Project calls a temptation pattern, uh, where the, the scriptures are presenting someone who sees that they could benefit for themselves, and so they take it. They see, they take, and then disastrous consequences play out. Uh, well, uh, it doesn't really work out well for everyone. Uh, except in the case of Boaz and in the case of Joseph, we have the reversal of this pattern. Boaz is not following the old script, and now Joseph too. So Boaz sees Ruth next to him in the middle of the night, and he refrains from taking her. Likewise, Joseph sees that Mary is already pregnant, and he does not take her. Joseph, like Boaz, is rewriting the old script, where someone sees an opportunity for immediate personal gain and refrains from taking. This is why it says that Mary's pregnancy from the Holy Spirit becomes noticeable And what does Joseph do when he sees that he could just claim Mary as his wife? He could just assert his right to be the father and assert his right to Mary as his wife. That's the position he finds himself in. But he does not take. Notice how the angel tells Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take your wife. Joseph only takes when the angel has said, look, it's okay. Don't worry. The child is sanctioned. The marriage is sanctioned. It's okay. And then notice that as soon as he wakes up, it says Joseph took his wife and he did not know her up till the time she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So even though he's been told it's okay to take Mary, he's still not grasping. He's still not following that script of just taking. He's still refraining from fully taking, uh, from fully taking advantage of what he could probably have asserted marital rights, but he's not fully taking advantage of what he could easily take. He's not taking the the easy option that, that his position allows him. So Joseph is like Boaz. Both of these men are not taking advantage of their position they find themselves in. It's undoing the old script where David, who sees Bathsheba, and he simply takes. He took advantage of his position, his power and his privilege, and he sees and he takes. Uh, So it's flipping the old patriarchal agenda to simply take because, you know, they have the power to get something without consideration of the consequences for everyone else. Uh, It's not just a patriarchal temptation, but it is something that uh, patriarchal privileges and powers seems to be particularly prone to this issue. It seems to be a much more of a patriarchal problem. If we simplify what the pattern in the pattern is, there is the double structural pattern, one human and one divine. So we could think of it as two patterns working together as one pattern, the divine agenda to bring the Messiah, working together with the lack of patriarchal agenda to produce particular heirs in the human realm. And then we have patterns within the human pattern, within the lack of patriarchal 
a gender pattern is another variegated pattern where we find different kinds of lacking agendas within the five patriarchal characters. So Judah blocks his lineage from continuing because he wrongly assumes that Tamar is not being loyal to his lineage, and Tamar rectifies things without him knowing it. Uh, Salmon does not seem to have planned ahead to be the uh, father of Boaz, but serendipitously turns out to be the father of Boaz from Rahab. Boaz ends up being known as the father of Ruth's son, despite planning otherwise. David never planned to produce the next king when he decided to take another man's wife. Joseph tried not to claim Mary and her child, but providence intervened. So within this human pattern of five cases, we find variety. And within this variety, we find notable comparisons between the first and fifth cases, between Judah and Joseph, and between the third and fifth cases, between Boaz and Joseph. Well, how do we conclude this conclusion to this episode, which is itself a conclusion to the last several episodes, looking at difficult questions to culminate in answering the question, why are there five references to mothers in the genealogy of the Messiah? Well, the one thing that really has stood out to me is that how clear the patriarchal nature of the issue is. There is a tension here where the text is deliberately talking about patriarchal issues, but the point that it's making is to point out that it's the patriarchal, it's the lack of patriarchal prerogative. These are the times which are really important that allows the Messiah to arrive. So in the human realm, it's what the fathers are not doing. They're not making it happen. They're not they they don't have the prerogative to produce that particular heir. Uh, it's not what they were trying to do that, that actually enables that to happen. So now that we can see what the tension is, uh, it's picking up patriarchal issues because it's talking about this two-part pattern, this double pattern between the human and the divine. So uh, the tension is between, well, there's the human and the divine. There's the, the, the divine realm with the divine intention, and there's the human realm with the potential to put things into action. So you have the will and the agency to enact the will. And we don't really want to be finding that, that there is a human prerogative that's in conflict with the divine prerogative. So, of course, it makes sense that it's pointing out it's those times when there's the lack of the human prerogative in the human patriarchal realm that enables to not conflict with the the divine prerogative, the divine patriarchal prerogative. Uh, And that's another uh, issue is, why is it using the language of patriarchy for both realms? I mean, it makes sense that it's using it in in the, the human realm, because that's the nature of what's being dealt with in the human realm. That's 
the patriarchal prerogatives in this kind of messianic lineage where fathers tend to have the will to produce an heir. And then, but using that same language for describing the divine prerogative in terms of patriarchal terms as well, I don't think these two issues can be separated. I feel like they need to be studied together. So it makes sense that what helps to enable the Messiah to arrive is when there's not a clash between the two realms, uh, between what the patriarchs are doing and the divine will. Uh, So we're finding that, well, in order to enable the Messiah to arrive, it makes sense that, well, it's the lack of the patriarchal prerogative that is helping to enable the Messiah to arrive. Another thing that I've really noticed is the consistency. The consistency. So Matthew chapter 1 is so consistent with itself. Uh, we've, we've often thought that, oh, okay, well, the final air production, that's, that's nothing like the previous airs and how the previous airs were produced. But no, it's, it's highlighting the consistency between these five stories. So suddenly it, it becomes really clear why we have this double pattern. We have the divine intention to bring the Messiah. That, that's the divine agenda. And then the human role is to get with the divine agenda and to not conflict with that divine agenda. And so it makes sense that, well, it's the patriarchal prerogatives that are going to be potentially the problem, that they need to be sidestepped, that they need to be undone in some way in order to bring this, the, the, um, the synchronization between the human and the divine. And this this makes sense because, of course, it, there would be two patterns in the genealogy showing that the, the the human and the divine, because it's not like it's just purely one or the other. It's, it's always a combination of roles. So there's the, the divine role is to bring the, the agenda, and the human role is to figure out how to enact, how to get in line with this agenda. It's just been quite surprising to me, to see just how clear, how patriarchal the, the, the issue is, that that's being undermined as, as a really clear example of a patriarchal prerogative that just is potentially conflicting with the divine prerogative. Now, it would be very interesting to study all the other chapters in Matthew to see this recurring theme where Jesus is teaching his disciples, about giving up a lot of things. There's a lot of things that Jesus is saying to let go of, to give up, in order to receive something back, which is, which is, seems to be in a different realm. It's not, it's not, uh, the heavenly economy is, is that there are rewards that are not seen. It's quite a recurring theme throughout Matthew. Uh, I'll just point out one example from Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus has just promised the the 12 disciples that they'll be sitting on 12 glorious thrones in the regenesis, so in the the remade world. Uh, It's actually this word genesis uh, that we've been finding in Matthew chapter 1 with a little prefix at the front that means re, so in the remaking of of things, in, in the regenesis. Uh, but the reason why Jesus is saying this to his 12 disciples is because the disciples are asking about 
is there any kind of reward for, for us because we've left everything? They've left their families and their properties. They've left, they've given up on the usual patriarchal prerogatives to be there while they're away with Jesus anyway. They're, they're away. They've left their property and their family. And uh, Jesus is saying, well, you get, you get given back a very patriarchal-sounding role to be sitting on a throne only because they've given those things up. So, I mean, whether how literal or figurative we take this, it's, it's difficult to know. But it's interesting that this is the same theme of giving up the thing to get a, a heavenly version or an otherworldly version of that thing. In fact, we, we find this quite often in Matthew where the disciples are being encouraged to let go of the power and the possessions. and It's quite a mystical idea to say, well, if you let it go, you'll, you'll get it in some other realm. So it would be very interesting to study this theme as a whole throughout Matthew and to see how, how does Matthew chapter 1 and all the other chapters fit with each other in terms of the heavenly economy of, well, it's by giving it up that it's received. It's, and so a thing that would be very worthy of study is, well, how does all this help us with the patriarchal language? So there's a lot of patriarchal language that's being used. Uh, obviously, you know, it's addressing patriarchal issues with the men that are being taught, and then using that same sort of language for the divine. So for God, there's a lot of patriarchal language used for God. In fact, we don't tend to notice just how much that's happening because we've got the Gospel of John, the, the fourth Gospel according to John, which really goes for the, the father-son language quite a lot. So we don't tend to notice just how extreme it is in Matthew compared to, say, Mark. Uh, it's, it's hardly there at all in Mark, this idea of calling God Father consistently. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is quite often referring to God as your Father, uh, which seems to be related to this whole patriarchal topic. Uh, and I don't think they could be separated. I don't think these are two separate issues. As far as I can see, in terms of the patriarchal issue, addressing the patriarchal issue, and then referring to God as the patriarch, is like the replacement, like as if the human system of patriarchy is the problem. That That's the that's the problem that is conflicting with God, because God's supposed to be the patriarch. You're not, you're not supposed to have human patriarchs with their own prerogatives. That, that seems like th- th- this. whatever is going on, they're, they're not two separate issues. So to study one, we really need to study both to, together, how how these two issues are working together as it seems to be the same issue. Yeah, so anyway, it's been quite a fascinating journey for me uh, since I've started studying this uh, several years ago. Uh, I should probably just point out uh, a couple of things uh, about the kind of masculinity that, that Boaz is demonstrating. And uh, and that is that it's not depicting Boaz in terms of weakness, like like um, Sebastian Doan has suggested. Well, that you know that seems to be a flaw. Boaz is too generous, but I don't think that's what what's going on in the story. I think that that uh, it's pointing out Boaz's strength. In fact, it, it points out on 
on more than one occasion, the strength of Boaz. Uh, so it's showing what is he doing with his strength. Uh, you know, he's, he's using it to play a supporting role. It's not just saying that he's spineless or he's a doormat or he's a pushover, that anyone could just make him do anything. He's, he's got character. Uh, he's using his sensibilities to, to do things which... It's not just that he doesn't know what he's doing. It's, 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 it's supposed to be demonstrating that there's, there's a particular masculinity there that is really quite, uh, it's really quite worth studying even today. And, and I think there's still quite a lot we can learn from the story about Boaz and his masculinity and his the, the kind of fatherhood that he's willing to undertake. The idea of not uh, trying to claim a name or to feel entitled to a name. Uh, and the story gives that name back to him. He's not pursuing raising a name for himself and raising a lineage, and that the story gives it back to him, according to the principle that, that we see in Matthew chapter 1 and, and elsewhere in Matthew. And one thing that came to my mind is that the men that I know who have gotten married, uh, and maybe this is just uh, my generation, maybe it's not so the case nowadays, but but noticing that the men were not even willing to give up their surnames for their wives. They weren't giving up their surnames. They were just expecting, well, oh, I know the, the, their partner would, would give up their surname. You know, the, that's something that the, the wives will do. And, and it's not even, it doesn't seem like it should be a really big thing. It's not like what Boaz is, is giving up where it's, it's you know, it's, it's his own lineage. Uh, <laughs> it just seems like for a modern person, it doesn't seem like a huge thing to be giving up, but for some reason, it it seems to have been a difficult thing for for the men that I that I know from from um, my generation, and perhaps it's it's changing now. But this idea of well, knowing what you're doing consciously and deliberately, being willing to give up something, to know that you could potentially grasp at it, you could potentially grab that kind of privilege whatever it might be, uh, but then, no, let, laying that down, divesting that power, it's, it's, it still seems to be quite a powerful story to me, uh, the story of, of Boaz and Ruth. Anyway, I'll have to finish up this episode. Uh, there's, there's plenty more things uh, to study, but now my, my attention is mainly going to be in writing the, these episodes up into into a book and hopefully other scholars will be much more willing to read it in book format all right so that's all for episode 10 thank you for listening Mm